my heart is so full of messages that I, I just can't even explain what the, it's just been a season where I've done more studying and praying than I've ever done in my life because of where we're headed as a nation and where we're headed as a people. And we really don't know what in the world's going on and the mysteriousness right now of the ways of God is beyond comprehension. And we're seeking all of the pastors and different church leaders are seeking for direction and asking God to give us insight on what we are to do because we want to lead properly in this chaotic time, amen? We want to be shepherds to hear the voice of God and we want to lead our congregations in the way that God would have us to go. And as I've been studying and praying and listening and uh, just doing everything that I know to do to bend the, my ear to the voice of God, I have just found out that God is on the throne. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. Nothing is shaken in him. He's got everything under control. There's nothing to fret. There's nothing to worry about. But on the flip side of the coin, we're going to have to become more wise and more powerful than we've ever been before as a church. Uh, can you say amen? I'm not going to be dealing with the world issues and the election and all of that this Sunday. I don't know what I'm going to do next Sunday. I have no idea. Usually this Sunday I commit uh, a sermon to Thanksgiving because it is a time that we're going to be entering to the Thanksgiving season. Remember this Wednesday night coming up, we will not be having service due to Thanksgiving. We're going to let you stay home. And a lot of times that's the lowest attending Wednesday nights that we have anyway. I'd rather for my wife to be home baking so I can do something on Thursday that I like to do. Amen. Hallelujah. And uh, you women, those of you that would like to pay tithe on pumpkin pie and pecan pie, I'll take a tenth of it anytime you want to give it. Amen. But we are so thankful that this is the year, uh, a, a week coming up of Thanksgiving. And I'm not going to be preaching on that today, but I do think we are to honor God and be thankful can you just lift your hand and just thank the Lord for every good gift that he's ever given you? And would you praise the Father for just being good to you? God is a good God all of the time. And he's good to us in the land of the living. Amen. Praise the name of the Lord. There's something deep in my heart today that I want to share with you. It's not a shouting sermon. It's not a sermon to where you're going to be coming up here and getting loose from strongholds and having a great powerful experience unless God pours his spirit out in a different way. But the way that God's designed the message, I can tell what he's going to deal with our hearts about because it's very, it's very tender to the heart of God of what I'm going to be speaking on. It's one of the most important messages probably that you're going to be hearing in a long, long time. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to two scriptures. One is in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. The other one is in Colossians Chapter 4, verse 6. We'll read 1 Peter 3.15 first. It just simply says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's a message in itself. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you of a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now before I go to the next verse, I just want to explain one thing here. The Bible tells us that we are to give an answer to every man that asketh of the hope that's within us. And I really do believe in the days that's coming upon the earth. Some of the things that the Lord's been sharing with me or what I feel like the Lord's been speaking to me, that the world is going to be looking for answers. And they're going to be coming to the church and they're going to say, give me an answer. Why do you got hope in your life? Where does it come from? How did you get it? What am I to do? Give me direction. The church is the answer to the world's problems. Jesus Christ is the answer to the world's problems. I should say that the church has the answer to the world's problem, and that is Jesus Christ. And then he says in Colossians 4 and 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how you ought to answer every man. Now, there's a lot of preaching in these verses, and I'm just going to try to stick to the main theme of what God has placed in my heart. Now, over the next 12 months, I think that you, many of you is going to think that I'm going to be too repetitious and many of you are going to think maybe I've even become redundant. But this message in my heart today is going to be repeated over and over and over in many different ways and in many different forms. But I'm going to reveal one of the most, uh, one of the most, I should say one of the biggest failures uh, of the church 
and the mindset behind it. When I talk about the church, I'm not talking about necessarily our church, but I'm talking about the church world. I am determined to break down strongholds to hold the church back from being all that God has called it to be. I want to tell you this is a time to thrive and not just survive. I want you to get that in your spirit. This is a time for the church to thrive and not just survive. And I want you to know the church does not have to just maintain, hold on, barely survive, and just exist. I want you to know the church of Jesus Christ is to be the vibrant, earth-shattering, victorious, overcoming, triumphant church, and the most powerful force to reckon with on planet Earth. That's who we are supposed to be. We are the anointed of God. We have dominion. We have power. We have the spirit of the Lord in us. And you and I are to be the most powerful force on the face of the earth. Can I have an amen? As a whole, all too often, the description that I just gave you of the church does not represent most churches in America. As a whole, most churches in America are dead. They're full of apathy. They are joyless. There's no joy whatsoever in those churches. And as a whole, churches are failing to reach the general population and has lost their ability to reach and to reap a harvest. Souls are simply not being saved in America. We are seeing church declines all over the place. We're seeing preachers leaving the ministry. We're seeing churches shut down. We're seeing whole, uh, whole denominations declining in numbers. The church has lost its voice and influence within America, and it has lost its effectiveness to reach sinners with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church has lost its cutting edge and its ability simply to reach people and reach their communities, reach their neighborhoods, and reach their families. We have to examine and ask ourselves why we are failing in evangelizing the world because that is our main reason of our existence. The main reason that we are here today and saved, we are saved for purpose, and that is to evangelize the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to the harvest. How many believes that? We are called to the harvest in the great commission of Jesus himself. Jesus commanded us and gave us a commission to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I will be with you always. That lo, I will be with you always is contingent upon whether or not that we are fulfilling that great commission. Did you know this was not just a suggestion by Jesus, this was a commandment of Jesus. And you know, we always talk about the great commandments. We talk about the Ten Commandments and how that we are to keep those Ten Commandments, and we are. But I want to tell you, this commandment is just as important as the other Ten Commandments. It's a command. It's a commission of Jesus Christ. You remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, Master, he said, what do I, what do I have to do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. And he said, which commandments? And Jesus tells him the commandments, the Ten Commandments. And then he says, well, all of these I have done since my youth. What lack I? He says, there's one thing that you lack. He said, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. Take up your cross and follow me. And the scripture says that he went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. And one of the things that I got to un you to understand is even though, even though I doubt that he kept all of those commandments, he tried to live a righteous life or whatever, but let's say he did keep all of those commandments, that was not enough. Jesus said the main thrust of what I want you to do is that you have a commission and you have a job and you have a responsibility to the kingdom. I want you to die out to yourself. I want you to take up your cross. I want to be Lord of your life. I want you to follow me and the man would not do it. We have to realize that failure does not just occur. There's a reason for failure. There's a reason why churches are not growing. There's a reason why churches are declining. There's reasons why we're not effective in the harvest. There's reasons why we're not influential anymore. Failures are a part of our mindsets. Failures are flawed actions put into motion 
due to how one thinks. Ever what you think, my friend, is revealed in your action and it will come out of you. And if it's a flaw, then you have a flawed thinking. Our behavior is determined by our beliefs and when you have a flawed belief, it's going to taint your action. It's going to taint your behavior. Our priorities as a church as a whole in America are not mingled with passion because we're not spiritual passion, I should say, because as a whole, the church's spiritual passion is not winning souls. It's evident. Souls are not being won. There is no great harvest right now being won throughout America. There may be people being saved, but as a whole, we are seeing the sinner, the unregenerated, the lost, not being convicted of their sin, but yet they're growing worse. Can I have an amen? Iniquity is abounding everywhere. Darkness is covering the earth. We are finding ourselves in the middle of an apostate state church that's rising up that's full of deception and people are buying into it by the, th- by the thousands and this area of America is becoming darkened. We as the church of Jesus Christ, we have been content with what I call a proclamation approach to the gospel of Jesus. And what I mean by that is we have felt that we have fulfilled our obligation and our responsibility to the gospel by just allowing the preachers to preach it and to proclaim it. Well, or may Maybe even us ourselves may preach it a little bit and proclaim it and tell some truths to individuals. But this is what we do. We'll say, well, bless God, I told them. Now the responsibility's on them. And if they're going to, and it's all up to them. And we want to blame the sinner for not being saved. Bless God, I told them. Bless God, I told them. I gave them the truth of the gospel. And they didn't hear me. And because they didn't hear me, it's it's on their shoulders now. That's kind of the attitude approach that we have taken in the church. We justify ourselves and believe that we have fulfilled our obligation when we pay preachers to preach within the pulpits of churches and over the radio and when we support religious television programs and when we give out or offer books or offer tracts. I fulfilled the great commission. I paid my tithes. The preacher's preaching to the congregation and he's preaching on the radio and he's preaching on Facebook and he's out there on the internet. Bless God, we're fulfilling our obligation because the word is going out. Well, let me tell you, this is simply not true. And it's one of the biggest deceptions that the church has bought into in this 21st century by the enemy. Our gospel is an incarnational gospel. What do I mean by that? It means it's a gospel that's embodied in a human form or in, by a deity or by a spirit. In other words, when God wanted to save us and reveal himself to us, he did not send us a cassette tape. He did not send us a book. He did not write something in the sky. He did not send us an personal message. He did not see, we did not see him on a big screen. He didn't Facebook us when he wanted us to come to know him. He wrapped himself in human flesh. He walked among us and we beheld his glory as the glory as the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. He lived here. He felt our pain. He tasted rejection. He knew prejudices. He experienced poverty. He encountered disfavor. He took on human flesh. He was one 100% divine. He was 100% the son of God but he also became 100% flesh. He became 100% the son of man. He touched the untouchables. He loved the unlovable. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. He fellowshiped with the rich and the poorest of poor. He was crucified among thieves. He was rejected by his own people. He was scandalized by the religious establishment. He was set up by his own disciples. He was abandoned by his closest admirers. He was misunderstood by his family. He was buried in a borrowed tomb without one coin of the temple currency in his pocket. But what God did in Christ through the miracle of the incarnation was to contextualize the gospel in such a way that we all could identify with Jesus and he could identify with us. Hallelujah. He touched us. He blessed us. He talked to them. He sat with them. He ate with them. He slept with them. He became like them so that they could become like him. And he could feel their very infirmities. Isn't that what Hebrews 4 says? In verse 14 through 16 when he said, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but he was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find help in our time of need. And 
now because Jesus was incarnated in human flesh, he can identify with my pain because he was tempted just like I'm tempted. He was abused just like I'm abused. Unjustly, he was treated just like we've been treated unjustly. Everything that you'll ever experience in life, Jesus Christ has experienced that. So when you come before his throne, you can find help and mercy in your time of need because he can be touched with the feeling of your infirmity because he has identified with it. He feels it because he took on human flesh. Can I say, can you have an amen to that? Give the Lord praise for what he's done. So what I am telling you, it is an incarnational gospel that God is causing us to live out before a watching world because I want you to know the Holy Spirit dwells in every believer here. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Even as God was in Christ reconciling the world, God is in the church, the believer reconciled the world through the representatives and the ambassadors of Jesus Christ, the body of the Christ, the church, and that is who we are. The Holy Spirit is in you, incarnated in you. Can I have an amen? The Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus Christ is in us. We have been given a go ye gospel, but we have attempted to replace it and neatly press it into a come to church gospel. This is heavy on my heart. We have built our churches, hired our preachers, hired our nursery workers. Some cases they're hiring teachers and everything else. And we have announced to the sinner, come and hear about Jesus. That's the approach America has taken. We have convinced ourselves that we have fulfilled our obligation to the Great Commission by doing this kind of procedure, and that is simply not true. A go-ye gospel can never be stuffed into to come to our programs and to our local churches and see Jesus. We must take the gospel to the streets, to the housing projects, to the apartment complexes, to the workplaces, to our neighborhoods, to our friends, and even to our families. We are to preach to the lost. Let me rephrase that because I want to put it in a little different way. We are not to preach to the lost as much as we are to live the gospel before them in such a way that they see Christ in us. It was Francis Assisia that said, share the gospel as often as you can and if necessary, use words. And I want to tell you, before they can experience your doctrine and your belief, they got to, first of all, embrace you as an, a believer. Before they can receive or trust your words, they have to trust and have confidence in you that you are and who you say that you are. Like John Maxwell's famous saying, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care, how true that is. It was Peter that said in our text that we are to give a reason of the hope that lieth within us. And I think that we're decently prepared to do that. I think sometimes we know how to present the gospel. I think sometimes that we know how to preach or to teach. We have become one of the greatest denominations the church of God has in preaching. I want to tell you the church of God's got some of the greatest preachers that you'll ever see on the face of the earth. But if good preaching is going to win the world, the church of God would be full right now. Are you listening to me? If sermons alone is going to reach the world, then I want to tell you this church right here would be full. We got some of the greatest preachers that we could have around here. I want to tell you, I don't even like for them to preach sometimes because they out-preach me bad. Amen? But I love when I hear a good word. But we, if we're going to build the kingdom, it's not going to be done just through preaching. It's not going to be done by just bringing the law to somebody and shoving it down their throats. It was Peter that said that we got to give a hope. But then Paul added something to that in Colossians 4 and 6. Let your speech be always with grace seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer every man. We as believers are not only to walk in wisdom before a world, but we are also to talk in ways that reveal a transformed life. Paul made it clear that our behavior, both our walk and our talk, is the foundation for our Christian witness. Our speech is not merely gracious words where we say, I love you, or God loves you, or we love you. It's good to say those kinds of things, but our lives must also be full of evidence by our actions 
to back up our speech and reveal it through benevolent and merciful acts of kindness. You and I got to learn how to really be on top of our game all the time. You lose your temper, you lose your witness. You smart off to somebody, you've lost your witness. Come on, somebody. You do things and go places that you shouldn't do and, and go places you shouldn't go, you lose your witness. Somebody with me? Is it getting tight or quiet in here? We have to see, the, the world has to see love in action and not just in mere words. The, the world is tired of hearing, God loves you. They're wanting somebody to really love them. It's more than just preaching the gospel to them, but it's also living that gospel in front of them. And even though preaching the gospel is important, yet our speech must be wrapped in graceful acts toward the sinner. Just as godly favor, God favored us and it, when he found us in our sin, because Romans 5 and 8 says, God commended his love toward us while we were yet sinners. And he died and gave himself for us. Even so, you and I are to communicate to those who are unsaved the unmerited favor of God by living a life as an example of Jesus Christ. And as a whole, the Church of America demands transformation before they offer fellowship or to get involved. They wait for someone to go to the altar and then they're targeted, then they're visited and they're fellowshiped with. Haven't you ever seen that? Somebody can come into the doors of a lot of places and maybe two people might shake their hands. And they sit down. People really never get to know them. They know who they are. Maybe by their example, oh, he's, man, look who's here. Oh, so-and-so's here. And then all of a sudden, if that man or woman gets up and goes to the altar, there'll be 50 people down there praying for them. In other words, we don't want to get involved in your life while you're in your sin, but if you'll come and get transformed, we'll offer you loving fellowship and grace of the church. Woo. I, I'm, I'm going slow here. It's more of a teaching this morning than it is a preaching. But did you know that Jesus done the exact opposite? He became the friend of sinners and showed them his love, and it was through that example that their lives were changed. Can I have an Amen. And what did the religious church do when Jesus done those things, when he ate with publicans and sinners? He said they, they accused him of being defiled. You have defiled yourself. You're a friend of sinners. Well, I got bad news for you. If that's your religious take on life, you're not going to like me as a pastor because I hang around with a lot of sinners. I rub shoulders with them. I love them. I'll sit at a table with one of them drinking. They're not my mainstay. They're not where I got my strength. No, I, I, you know, they're not who I hang around with 24-7. That wouldn't be wise. But I want to tell you, I love sinners. Can I have an amen? We have to be like Jesus. We have to draw the sinner to ourselves because we are Christ's representatives and we have to love them and then we can present them to Jesus Christ. The church is always one step away from becoming an exclusive Pharisee club by the simple reversal of this one single act. Let me say this real carefully. Love and acceptance precedes transformation. It doesn't follow it. I got to love them and accept them for who they are in order for me to win them. Amen? Amen? Somebody one time, we were sitting at a table, and when we got up and left, they said to me, man, why did you sit there? Man, did you hear what that guy was saying? I said, yeah. Well, why, why didn't you correct him? I said, that's who he is. I'm not going to embarrass him in front of everybody. Come on now. So, well, what kind of a pastor are you? I'll tell you what kind of a pastor I am. took me six months, but I won that individual to Jesus Christ. <laughs> Amen. The most important person at the palace of praise. You know who it is? Outside of God, of course. It's the sinner. When the unregenerated come in, they're tainted by the world, filthy, dirty. Their speech may not always be perfect. They may even slip and say a cuss word in church. Oh, did you hear so-and-so? That don't offend me at all. That's who they are. 
That's their nature. I'm not going to grab them by the seat of the pants and throw them out. Now, if a believer of 30 years does it, we got a problem. Amen? Would you rather have a clean barn or a dirty barn? That's what Proverbs ask you. Proverbs ask you, do you want oxen in the barn or do you want a clean barn? If there's oxen in the barn, which is a harvest animal that reaps the harvest, you're going to have doo-doo. And you know what I say? Bring all the doo-doo you can in the church, God. Bring them in. I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty. I'm not afraid to rub up against them and love on them and hug on them and kiss on them and tell them how much and how great that I care for them. Why? Because it's the loving action of the gospel inside of us. It is God in us loving them and it is God through us that's drawing them to Calvary where they can be washed of their sin and made white as snow and become regenerated to where they can become a part of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give the Lord praise. Amen. You know, the world's never going to be won by the declaration of the law alone. uh, alone. The Old Testament teaches us that. It's grace, love, and graceful action that the world needs to see through us. We must wrap our speech in grace, show that grace through our works of kindness. Paul uh, Paul tells us to season our speech with salt. Did you hear that? This is one of the most fascinating passages in the Word of God. Most of us overlook that, and we don't even know what it means. What do you mean season your speech with salt? When Paul talks about our walking in ways that will lead to the salvation of our friends by the mentioning of salt, he connects that idea with the Old Testament meat offering. It's found in the book of Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13. Listen to what it says. And every oblation of thy meat offering shall thou season with salt. Neither shall thou suffer the salt of the covenant by thy God to be lacking from the meat offering with all thine offerings. Thou shalt offer salt. Now the meat or the meal offering represented the offering of our service to God, our works, our labor. It represented the harvest field, the grain being brought in. In other words, it represented that we're not going to give anything to God that don't cost us something. To say it more simply, the meat offering is the life lived for Christ. That's what it is. The meat offering is the deeds of service done for others and for the kingdom of God and done all as a labor of love by our faithful obedience. It's one thing to say that we're consecrated to God and preach to people, but it's another to roll up our sleeves, get in the trenches, and go gather in the harvest and get to where they're at. Amen? The harvest can be messy, it can be dirty, it can be filthy, and it can be hard work. There's a sacrifice. So here, the meat or the meal offering, actually it was an offering of grain. Can you imagine them bringing grain in and God says, now put salt on that grain? As you know, salt is a preserver. It's what keeps things from what? Spoiling. Our harvest does not have to die on the vine and rot, but the salted fragrance of love, it can be actually preserved. Jesus said, say not that there cometh four months and then cometh harvest. I say unto you, look on the fields. They're white. They're ready to harvest right now. No doubt the harvest is plentiful and ready, but the workers and the laborers are few, according to Jesus. The problem is no one will take action until they feel personally responsible to the harvest. Until we get a burden and a passion and feel the responsibility of the call and the mandate upon us, we're not going to do much for the harvest. Until we see that we're a part of the solution for the needs around us, we will never become motivated to action. We'll sit around and we'll gripe and we'll complain about all this, what the sinner does and how they live their lives, not understanding we have the ability to change it. While we sit in the churches a lot of times and pray over things to change, nothing will really change until the church gets outside of the church and go ye and get in the trenches and begin to show them loving kinds of action displays that will draw them to them to where they then will be able to open their ears to be able to be presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ from somebody they trust. That's as simple as I can put it. This is not a really shouting sermon, is it? But do you know that every single one of us as members of the Palace of Praise 
not only have the call, the commission, and the command to do it and the responsibility, but we have the ability as a church to go into the highways and the byways and the hedges and through our loving acts of expressions of love, we can be able to show the people love to where they will accept the gospel that we present and we can change our world for Jesus Christ. Amen? God help us. Just the other day I was sitting in a sitting with Mike and we were eating at a certain restaurant. And we were sitting there and this little waitress kept coming up and she kept coming up and she kept coming up. And the Lord kept dealing with me and kept dealing with me and kept dealing with me. And I thought, okay. Now, you'd think, what's he going to deal with you about? Tell her about Jesus? No, that ain't what he told me to do. Tell him about the palace of praise? No, that ain't what he told me to do. Tell him that you're a preacher down there at the palace of praise? No, that ain't what he told me to do. When we got ready to leave, he told me to give her a $20 tip. She didn't have to know where I was from or who I am. I didn't have to present God to her. All I'd done is pulled her aside, gave her the money for the thing, and I said, honey, the Lord just kind of laid you on my heart. I want to bless you today. Here's you, a tip. And I gave her $20. Her eyes lit up, and she looked at me like, really? Seriously? And then she walked away. Is that not what happened, Mike? And I began to think about that, and I thought, you know what? The next time I go in and she's there, I'll be able to strike up a, probably a conversation with her. And before it's over, I expect to see her at the palace of praise saved and regenerated if she's not. Can I have an amen? Just simple obedience, just simple stuff. We make things way too hard. We over-spiritualize. We're the type of people that want to walk into a restaurant, hear ye the word of the Lord, and everybody gets saved. We want to walk into a hornet's nest where hell has bound people for 20 years and walk in, this saith the Lord, boom, be free, and everybody jump up free. It don't work like that. It never has worked like that, and it never will work like that. It takes a sacrifice on our part in order to win a harvest. We must take responsibility for the lost people around us. Salt is produced through sweat. Have you ever noticed that? Sweat is a manifestation of sacrifice. There's been times and I preach, I don't wear suits anymore. They're very hot and they're expensive. And my wife will take my suits to the dry cleaners. What does your husband do for a living? He's rough on suits. And there's been times they've handed the suit back, we can't do nothing with this. I've had blue suits, black suits, dark suits, that just turn white. You know why? I sweat a lot when I'm up here. Most of the time. I'm not sweating as much today, the way I'm presenting that today. But nevertheless, when I get aggressive and start preaching, I sweat, and when I sweat, it produces salt. Salt is a sign of sacrifice. And to win a harvest, a price has to be paid. And Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice and can we not then take up our cross, follow Jesus in obedience and become a living sacrifice for Jesus Christ? Can we not commit ourselves to that which he died for? We as a church, our life of sacrifice and labor offered to the world as if as we've given it unto God is what will lead others to Jesus Christ. So much of the 21st century church, our Christian labor is organized. It has nothing to do with the harvest whatsoever. It has to do about turning the attention back to ourselves. It's a come see mentality. Watch us perform. Look at us. See what we have to offer. Look how good our church is. Hey, isn't our worship good? Hey, come and see us. Come, come and see what we got to offer you. We're better than the church down the street. It's like we're in a spirit of competition around the world. That's the kind of gospel that we project to the world. Come and see us. Come and see us perform. Come and see us worship. Come and see us sing. Come and see our talent. Come and see our teachers are better. Come and see our preachers are better. Come see, come see, come see. Our idea of revival is this. Get something stirred up into the church and all of a sudden the sinners are just gonna automatically start rushing through the doors. Usually it's not the sinner that rushes through the doors. It's people from other churches that's rushing through the doors.
Can I have an amen? It's getting quiet in here. Unfortunately, the church is self-absorbed, and yet the essence of the meat offering being salted was at the heart of what the Apostle Paul was trying to get over to the Colossians. The whole purpose of Israel's existence was to be a witness among the nations in a world without God. That's why God put his chosen people, Israel, on the crossroads of the world. Did you know that, that it was the basis of the covenant that God made with Abraham was that he, through him, that all of the world would be blessed? How many knows that? And he confined that covenant with the house of David when he established David on the throne. Listen to what it says in 2 Chronicles 13 and 5. Listen very carefully. Ought ye not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons, by a covenant of salt? Israel failed to walk and talk before the Lord in such a way that, that God would be revealed to a lost and dying world. Israel was set at the crossroads of the world to perpetuate the gospel of Jesus. Jesus was to come to the Israel people, Israelite people. He was to come to them. They were to be a nation of priests under the leadership of Jesus Christ when he came. But he came to his own. His own received him not. And they killed him. And they destroyed him. They rejected Jesus. And when they did, they rejected their mission. They failed to serve their neighbors into the kingdom. And they turned inwardly. And they became self-absorbed. And guess what happened? Israel was led into idolatry. So Christ came. He rebuked them of setting up the kingdom. And he declared that their place was given to another to fulfill the destiny that they had missed. How sad. Jesus then gave the commandment to the church, the Gentile church, you and I, the body of Christ, and we have became a New Testament a priest. The Bible tells us that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that we should go forth and show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have received the same, same mandate that Israel has received the same calling, the same mission, but the church of America is doing exactly what Israel done. We're turning inwardly and we're becoming absorbed by ourselves. And we too have lost our ability to reach a community just like they failed to reach the world. Now, they have become and we have become a place of come and see, come and see, instead of the people that obey the voice, go ye, go ye. We have the same challenge to understand our mission as Israel did. But the problem of it is Paul gives a warning. To, I'm about to close. In Romans chapter 11, verse 21, Paul said, For if God spare not the natural branches due to their unbelief, take heed lest he also spare not you. Now listen to what God's saying. In that context, I'm not going to read it all, but God looks at Israel and says, if I've spared not the church, the Gentile church, he looks at us and says, if I spare not the natural branches, talking about Israel, if I cut them off, he said, beware unless I also cut you off. In other words, you who's an olive, wild olive branch that's been grafted in, you Gentiles have been grafted in. If you do not do what I tell you to do as Israel did not do, then I will also cut you off. That's a serious warning. So in what ways are we cut off? We have cut off in the sense that we've lost the ability to have an effect upon a society. We've all lost the ability to house the anointing. The gifts of the Spirit are almost non-operational throughout the churches of America. Come on. The flow of the Holy Spirit no longer is even sensed or even known or felt in a lot of churches. And most churches, their baptistries are used for storage places. In some churches, altars are not used, but maybe once or twice a year when a pastor may dedicate a grandbaby to a church from a family, they'll never step foot back in it again. We've been cut off. The witness of the Spirit's no longer among us. And the result is we got a decaying nation that's dying and going to hell and we want Donald Trump to turn it around for us. So we'll try to vote him in 
in order for him to do the work that the church is supposed to do. We're going to try to win the world through a legislative branch and it'll never work. If the world's going to be won, it's going to be won when the church rises up in love and in victory and we go out in the streets and the highways and the byways and we present a gospel out of loving action and kindness and generosity and have the fruits of the Spirit and we're long-suffering and we're patient with those that are hungry for a real true manifestation of who God is. The gospel I am preaching to you today ain't always a thrill jumping around shouting hallelujah, victorious, delivering message and let's just all have a great good time. It's work, it's sweat, it's a covenant of salt found in the Old Testament. What did Jesus say? And I'm going to get away from my notes because I was going to get into the covenant of salt. We don't have the time and I don't feel led to go there. Jesus said this. You are the light of the world. You, first of all, he said, you are the salt of the earth. And if the salt has lost its saltiness or its flavor, wherein shall it be salted? But it's good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of man. You and I are the salt of the world. You know what Job said? Who can eat unsavory meat? And does the white of an egg taste good by itself without salt? That's what Job asked. How many of you like to get a bunch of food and eat it that has not got any salt in it whatsoever? Me and Mike Burton go out to eat together about every day and we're fighting for the salt shaker. And if there's just a little bit of salt in it, I'm going to grab it first. I like thing, I like a little food with my salt. Amen? Why? Because salt flavors it. Salt makes it taste good. Amen? Salt does something to the taste buds that makes you want more. It's addictive. If you don't believe me, check out my blood pressure. It'll tell you it's addictive. My mother, when my grandmother and my grandfather moved in with us, she had to watch how she cooked because they became older and my grandfather developed problems. He couldn't have salt. And I'd sit down at the table and I'd start to eat. What's wrong with this? She, she didn't put no salt in it because grandpa. And he didn't want grandpa to feel bad that she didn't salt the food. Not knowing that every time they turned her back, grandpa had the salt shaker. <laughs> And then he'd look at me, don't you tell on me. <laughs> yeah, he died, but he died happy. <laughs> salt is something that flavors that meat that that and it acquires a taste to want more. Amen? And our presentation a lot of times is we don't even know anybody and we want to cram our church down them and invite them to church and we think that is winning the harvest. They don't even know us. We're a perfect, how many people have come up to me over my years and said, hey, will you come go church with me? And I'm thinking, yeah, right, I don't even know you. Where do you go to church at? And they'll tell me. And then you'll always see something nice. I've heard about that church, but you don't tell them what you heard about that church. Come on now. Am I meddling a little bit? What God wants us to do is to see a need and begin to fill it with loving kindness actions toward that sinner. And when we do, it's a salt shaker going all over them. It's flavoring them. And before long, you won't even have to say nothing. They'll say, where do you go to church? Oh, I go down to the palace of praise. And before long, what happens is you develop a taste in them to where they get curious enough to begin to ask of you because you are salting their lives, flavoring their lives. And when you begin to do that through your acts of kindness, you open up a door to have the ability to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Our problem is 
will she a need? And then we'll look at them and we'll develop a little bit of a, a, a friendship with them. And then when we see they're getting ripe to about to harvest, we'll call the church and say, hey, pastor, can you come over here? This guy believes close to winning the harvest. Then win him because I haven't built the relationship you have. And when I come, they don't know who I am. It's your belief in me that you want me to do the work, but the truth of the matter is that guy don't have any idea who I am, and anybody that's going to win him, you have a lot better chance of winning him than I do. Can I have an amen? God showed me a vision, and this is where I, it's just not, not an open vision where I've seen it in the heavenlies and it appeared before me, but in my mind. And it just went over and over and over in my mind this week. And I've seen where... There were people just coming in and going out, coming in and going out, coming in and going out of our church, just masses, amounts of people. And I looked, and when they came in, every Sunday was a celebration. Every Sunday was an outpouring. Every Sunday was just a, man, people were being refilled and touched and delivered and healed and blessed. And I said, oh, Lord, what is this? And he said, this is what I desire the palace to become. I said, how do we become that God? And he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world. And God said, when you begin to allow salt to be turned into light, a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hid, when we get flavored and all these 600, 700, 800 people that come here on a regular basis, when we have a flavored life salted by God and we go out and we, we share that saltiness through our sacrifice and our hard work and our labors of love and our kindness and our generosity and all of that kind of a thing, and then we share the gospel, it becomes communicable and before long things explode here and then our witnessing becomes evil because that is when people are drawn to the church. That's when people see it. And they see that it's authentic and they see that it's real and revival is spring out. God spoke to my heart and he said, don't worry about Africa. Pray for it, but don't, that's not your main concern. Your main concern's not Washington. Your main concern's not California. Your main concern's not, not Illinois. Your main concern, he said, your main concern is Papa Bluff. That's where I planted you. In Acts 1 and 8, you should receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Notice the first word he said was Jerusalem, the home base. If the home base ain't saved, why are you trying to reach the rest of the world for? And if we want our nation to change, we change it person by person, bit by bit, little by little. And how do we change them? When this church goes out of these four walls, becomes salt and becomes light and gets involved in the affairs of sinners and begins to love them and care for them and to put on display kindness and generosity and acts of benevolence and helping them, encouraging them, doing everything that we can and being faithful to them. And then after a season of doing that, you have to present the gospel that is seasoned with salt. And when you do, you'll win them over to Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me, please? This thing called soul winning is one of the hardest things that we do, and yet it's one of the most simple things that God taught us. One of the things that I miss as a pastor is being able to have the time to just on my job or wherever to run with a bunch of sinners love on them in the earlier days when we were a smaller church I'd pick out a sinner a week I would I'd invite them to go fishing with me and some of those people that I invited the family saying come and tell them about the gospel come and preach to them no, that ain't what I'm going to do at first and once a week I would point me out a guy and I'd go, let's go fishing. And I worked at Gates River Company. I'd done it regularly, once a week. And sometimes I didn't get to do it every week, but as a whole, that was my goal. I'd say, let's go fishing. I'd take them down south of Dudley, the promised land, get them in a good environment. We'd throw out our poles. And we'd sit there and we'd talk fishing. And I'd laugh with them, cut up with them. I'd have lunch already made. I gave them sodas. 
I gave them bologna sandwiches. I'd joke with them. I'd laugh with them. But then all of a sudden, by doing that, sometimes it happened on the first fishing trip, sometimes the second, sometimes the tenth one. All of a sudden, they begin to open up and ask me questions. Through that process, I won 20 families to Jesus Christ. 20 families. If I ask you today, how many of you here because I preached your loved one's funeral? You would not believe how many were saved by me just preaching a funeral, an act of kindness. I'll just use one and I know that they don't care and they're not here, so I'm able to do it anyway because hey, they'll never know because they're on vacation this week. Well, I think maybe Lynn might be here. Lynn Kinsey, I got a call one time from my secretary, Rhonda Daves at the time, and said we got a woman at, at um, Row Furniture, a man at Row Furniture, his wife has died and they don't have a church, they don't have a family. Uh, a church family they're, you know, they're, not, they're not going to church anywhere and they need a preacher to preach the funeral would you do it for them I said most certainly I went over to their home and I walked in and they were grieving and I began to minister to them done the funeral after the funeral I checked up on them and guess what two Sundays later a Sunday later whenever it was they were in the church guess what the kids get saved, the dad gets saved, the family gets saved. They're saved still yet today over just preaching a few of a people I didn't even know. Now, I can't do that as much because of the time factor on my life right now. It's crazy. I, I, you know, it's just we got a big church. But when the body of Christ begins to put on displays of just acts of kindness, but the problem of it is, we got to do more than just the acts of kindness. Then we have to be able to present the gospel. Somewhere along the line, the gospel is what brings them, the truth is what brings them to Christ. I'm commissioning this body today. Go ye, start working, get in the trenches. It ain't about an event that we have here at the church. Oh, it's not wrong to invite them to an event. It's not wrong to get them here. But as a whole, I want you to know more people will be saved when we go out seasoned with salt and putting time and energy in our neighbor and our friend. Don't gripe about your neighbor that they let the weeds grow up and the dog's always barking and you're over, always mad at them and upset at them and there's all kinds of mysterious people in and out of the home and you're judging it to maybe even be a drug house or things going on there that shouldn't be going on. Start pouring into them. If you want to change, it's up to you to change them. The truth, that's the truth. Nothing's going to change by your gripe and your murmuring and complaining. Get involved in them, but you don't understand who they are. I don't care who they are. Get involved in them. And when they get mad at you and they shun you, don't be a Barney Fife when the little boy goes, eh, and then Barney Fife, eh, and Andy says, let's keep this on an adult level. Let's keep this on a Christian level. Don't become like them. When they do bad things to you, love them. Smile at them. Be kind to them. You heap hot coals of fire on their head when you do. Amen? Everybody, reach out your hand. I'm giving you a commission as a pastor. Go ye with your life seasoned with salt. Palace of praise. Invest yourselves. Be a living sacrifice. And be like Jesus and win the lost in Jesus' name.